Hello there, my name is Danny Yeoman, wild bird expert for Pets Corner and developer of Peter and Paul Bird Foods. Welcome to the next of a number of podcasts detailing some of the amazing birds that we see and feed in our garden. This week we're going to be covering a bird that actually never really turns up in a garden, but as we covered mallard ducks last week, it only seems right to cover the splendid mute swan. Stately and serene, often bringing a touch of glamour to rather uncompromising surroundings, the mute swan is their largest and heaviest breeding bird, and one that absolutely anyone can recognise. Few species have given rise to so many myths. If you ask anyone about what they know about swans, you hear a few things. They can break your arm. They all belong to the queen, and lastly, they mate for life. The mistaken assertion that swans can break a man's arm is a favourite among pub boars. In fact, a swan is far more likely to break its own wing than your arm. Even if they are a little aggressive, if you approach them too closely during the breeding season. The tradition that the swans of Britain belong to the Queen, or more correctly the reigning monarch, is a commonplace pub fact that actually has some basis in truth. As ever, the truth is slightly more nuanced than the soundbite. Like most wildfowl in the early medieval periods, swans often found themselves on the dinner table of the rich and poor alike. Prior to the arrival of domesticated poultry from Asia in later centuries, the swan was a large and readily available source of meat, although it was the young cygnets who were said to have the greatest flavour and were served at feasts. Of course, in those times, possession of such birds came to signify wealth and power, and like deer, came the prerogative of the aristocracy. The earliest written record of the royal ownership of swans dates back to 1186 and actually relates to captive birds, indicating that swans were already being farmed to some degree. The various grand houses and families of England laid claim to the swans on the waterways within their bounds and from the 13th century onwards would mark their birds with elaborate carvings on their beak that signified their ownership. These marks were made on the living bird during swan-upping season, organised by the crown around July, while the cygnets were still unable to fly. This was a labour-intensive task, involving boats and manpower to ply the waters, catch the birds and mark them. Poaching and eating marked swans was met with severe punishment. The crown was therefore merely one owner of swans, those within royal lands with the rest owned or claimed by the various noble houses. As farm poultry came more commonplace, swans play an increasingly marginal role in the dinner table, and by the 19th century very few houses bothered to retain their right to swans. Today only the Crown, in conjunction with the Vintners and the Dyers, retain their right to swans on the Thames only, and that is a purely ceremonial fashion, with an added dash of modern ecology concerns. Swan-upping still takes place during a colourful five days in July, and the Queen's Keeper of Swans stills oversees a count of all swans. However, the swans are not served as tasty dip bits, but counted as part of a general consensus of wildlife and monitored for health problems. Lastly, mating for life. Yes, they can mate for life, but that does not necessarily mean all swans mate for life. It's the same with people. 
some form of relationship with a partner that lasts from when they're teenagers to when either one of them dies. Some do, some don't. It's the same with swans. The difference being that a far greater proportion of swan populations mate for life than people. But they do divorce, and it's not such a small amount as been able to say that is insignificant. But a pair bond between swans is normally very, very strong. Although everything people think they know about swans is usually wrong, they do add synergy and grace to their surroundings, offering temporary relief from the world gone mad, and seem to eradicate happiness, a quality that humans might want to consider emulating. It's impossible to be depressed around the glamorous vegetarian. They simply won't allow it. The mute swan is Britain's largest bird and one of the heaviest flying birds in the world. Adults can weigh over 15 kilograms. The combination of their large size, very long neck, white plumage and orange-red bill with a black knob towards the top of the bill makes them easy to recognise. Males, or cobs, and females, pens, are similar in appearance, although males are slightly larger and have a more prominent knob on the bill. Juveniles are greyish-brown, with the grey bill which lacks the knob seen in the adults. The male swan is called a cob due to the knob on its beak. This comes from the old German term knoft, meaning knob. The female is called a pen because she holds her wings back in a penned manner, from the English term penne. Interestingly, the flight feathers of the female swan was used as writing implements, then known as pen quills, and later quill pens, until the quill was left out and only the word pen remained. So our present day ballpoints, etc. take their name from a female swan. Mute swans aren't mute. They're called this because they do not emit a sound in flight. All other swans communicate in the air. On the water, the mute swan is far from mute. Mute swans make an explosive snorting or hissing when threatened or disturbed. Mates greet each other with a short snoring sound, and females solicit their mates with a slow glock glock call. Female swans call to their brood with a sound like a yapping puppy. Then in a group, mute swans growl, whistle and snort at each other. Cygnets whistle a soft, low-volume contact call when preening or feeding with adults and peep noisily at high pitch when distressed or lost. As they land, mute swans slap the water with their feet either pattering alternatively or striking simultaneously, to alert possible intruders. In flight, the swan makes rhythmic humming or whistling sounds that carries more than a mile and may help the birds communicate with each other. As I've already mentioned, mute swans usually pair for life and then mate and begin building their nest in March and April. 
The nest is built on the ground, near to water, in an undisturbed place. The cob collects reeds and sticks, bringing them to the female so she can arrange them. The nest is often a very big platform-like structure and may be the pair's old nest, which has been rebuilt and used year after year. Although the cob and pen look very similar at first glance, they can be told apart by looking at their beaks. In the spring, the summer, the cob's bill is brighter colour than the pen's, and the black knob is more bulbous. The cob is never far away from a mate on the nest, keeping an eye out for intruders. If a potential predator gets too close, he will hiss at them, and if necessary, will charge at them with flapping wings. The pen lays five to eight large greenish-brown eggs, one every two days. She does most of the incubation, which starts as soon as the last egg has been laid. This allows all the young to hatch at the same time, after 36 days. Soon after hatching, the young swans, cygnets, covered with fluffy grey down, leave the nest. Their parents pull up water plants for them to eat, and they snap up invertebrates from the surface of the water. The cygnets stay with their parents until next winter, by which time they're losing their brown plumage that replace the grey down. It will be a full year before they're completely white, and they are ready to breed when they're three to four years old. Mute swans eat aquatic vegetation with their long necks equipped for them to take it from the bottom of the lake, river or pond. They take the mollusks that cling to the vegetation and also eat small fish, frogs and worms. They will graze big grassy fields and can survive quite successfully in a field of short crop grass. Mute swans normally find enough food in the wild without supplementary feeding, but people do enjoy feeding them. Feeding mute swans and ducks on our lakes, ponds and waterways is one of the greatest pleasures of living in the UK. But if you're going to feed them, never feed them bread. Bread is not good for any species of birds. Their digestive system is not designed to metabolise refined flour, preservatives, yeast or refined sugar. And yet bread to swans is like sweets to a kid. They'll wolf it down and the same is true of ducks. Bread displaces the natural foods these birds should be eating. It's very high in protein compared to a swan's natural diet of water weeds. If they eat too much bread for too long, they can become weak and breed unhealthy young. If cygnets, baby swans, eat a lot of bread or grains, they can experience a growth spurt causing their body to develop too quickly for their legs. They become plump to the point where they can barely stand or walk. Some develop a condition called angel wings, where the feathers on one or both wings grows out sideways. Birds with angel wings will never fly, and are often bullied and shunned by fellow swans. You'll notice that mute swans dip their heads underwater. They do this to feed on stems and roots of water weeds. These green foods are a mute swan's natural diet supplemented by grasses on land and the occasional bug or insect. Although bread is very convenient and clearly swan and ducks love it, they will live longer, healthier lives eating natural food such as aquatic plants, grasses and insects. If you want to feed swans, there are many alternatives that are much more suitable and safer than bread. 
Some of these include grapes that have been deseeded and cut in half, frozen peas that have been defrosted, or good quality wild bird food, like Peter and Paul mealworm mix and Peter and Paul clean plate. But try to vary what you feed them, so they don't become reliant on just one single type of food. Alternatively, you could buy a food that's been specially formulated for waterfowl. Wild thing swan and duck food that we sell in our pet's corner stores is a small dry nugget that stay afloat on the water. The benefit of food floating is that it remains accessible to the birds for a longer period of time, so more likely to be eaten. It also helps prevent the pollution of the water caused by uneaten decaying food that has sunk to the bottom. Wild thing swan and duck food is much more nutritious than bread and also very tasty too. British mute swans are normally found in low-lying areas and are fairly sedentary, movements of over 100 kilometres being uncommon due to the general availability of food. In some other countries they do migrate considerable distance in search of food during the winter months. Over the last 30-40 years the mute swan population has fluctuated Many swans living on rivers where coarse fishing is popular died because they were swallowing lead fishing weights with their food. Lead is very poisonous. Since 1987 the use of lead weights has been banned in the UK and its swan population has recovered. Another hazard for swans is careless disregarding fish hooks and lengths of nylon fishing line. Both can cause swans to suffer a painful death. Whether you live in the town or country, you can help look after garden birds by providing a wildlife friendly garden that includes water and having the very very best food available for them, foods like Peter and Paul. For more information regarding Peter and Paul wild bird foods, please check out the Peter and Paul website at www.peter-and-paul.com or pop into one of their wonderful Pets Corner stores. And the nearest store to you can be found at the Pets Corner website at www.petscorner.co.uk. Well, that's it from me. I hope you've enjoyed this look at mute swans. For further birds, please continue to check out the stream, and I look forward to speaking to you soon.